Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Have you finally caught up on sleep after that time change a couple weeks back? Now, if Florida has its way, daylight savings time would be permanent nationwide. Coming up, we'll learn all about the Sunshine Protection Act. It's the idea, the idea behind it has been floated by some New England states. We'll also explore whether adopting two time zones for the U.S. makes sense in the long run. But first, Massachusetts will become the first state in New England to sell recreational marijuana this summer. Maine voters also approved legal weed, but implementation has run into snags from the Maine legislature and Governor LePage. Connecticut lawmakers have weighed similar proposals for recreational marijuana in recent years, but so far the legislation hasn't found enough support. Could that change this legislative session? Coming up, we'll hear from two lawmakers on opposite sides of the debate, State Representative Vincent Candelora and State Senator Gary Winfield. They'll join coming up. But first, we want to hear from you. Do you want Connecticut to legalize and sell marijuana? Why or why not? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We're going to start with an update from Massachusetts. On the phone with us is Dan Adams, cannabis reporter for the Boston Globe. Dan, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So we're hearing that sales of recreational marijuana is set to begin in July. So uh, briefly walk us through the process since citizens uh, legalized uh, this in a ballot measure a couple of years ago. Sure. So in the fall of 2016, uh, voters here in Massachusetts approved recreational marijuana, uh, not by a huge margin, just under 54 percent voted yes on that question. Uh, and then last summer, we had the legislature uh, sort of revise that law that voters had approved, and they changed some things about um, how it will be implemented. They raised the taxes on recreational marijuana. They slightly changed the system of local control, where cities and towns uh, decide whether to allow these businesses. Um, and they also made the agency that's going to regulate it um, uh, independent, and they added five members to it instead of three. So they made some modest tweaks um, but uh, all in all, uh, you know, we're still on track for this rollout coming up this summer. And uh, from what I understand, the, uh, the uh, marijuana is going to be taxed at 17%. That's right, 17% at the state level, and then uh, municipalities are allowed to impose an additional tax of uh, up to 3%, uh, so for a total of 20 for consumers that are uh, paying at the register. So with the, uh, the agency uh, that is looking at uh, uh, regulating this, uh, t- walk us through when we talk about uh, being uh, for sale in July, um, exactly uh, are they expected to start at July 1, or, or what's the latest there? <laughs> that is the uh, question of the hour here in Massachusetts. Uh, yes, sales are scheduled to begin in July, um, but there's increasingly a feeling that the rollout is going to be perhaps a bit underwhelming, maybe you know, fewer stores than consumers expected. Um, that's not necessarily because of any uh, incompetence on the part of the um, state regulatory agency. 
It simply has more to do uh, with this local control issue where uh, many uh, municipalities have put in place restrictions on these businesses, and so the number of uh, uh, cities and towns available for them to open in is limited. The other thing that's happening here um, is actually almost a horticultural issue. Uh, it takes four to six months to grow a marijuana plant and to harvest the buds from it, cure them and dry them and prepare them for sale, uh, or manufacture them into other products like edibles. And so... Uh, a company that gets its license in the next couple of months here, they're not going to have anything ready to go uh, for a little bit of time. So uh, it's quite possible that this summer, while, yes, sales will begin, we could be looking at a relatively small handful of stores, you know, three, five, ten. It's hard to put an exact number on it. It's probably not going to be a lot. The stores that open uh, most likely are going to be existing medical dispensaries that win a recreational license and get permission to uh, sell to adults 21 and older as well. You mentioned the dispensaries uh, that might be interested in that recreational license. When will they get notice that they'll be able to to sell uh, recreationally? So they're going to be able to start applying for licenses uh, just about any day now. Um, uh, basically, the middle of April is when they'll really start um, submitting their uh, uh, applications. They get sort of express licensure uh, because they've already been approved uh, by the state to do medical marijuana. So the thinking is, uh, why make them sort of start from the beginning and, and uh, do the application process all over again? So they get a little bit of a head start. And, and again, it's quite uh, likely that they'll be the only ones actually ready uh, to sell recreationally that, that will have products in stock. Um, so that, that process is about to begin sort of the middle of next month. Um, and then we can look forward to those stores, a few of them uh, opening in July, likely. Now, uh, if we know uh, uh, a majority of voters wanted uh, recreational marijuana uh, in Massachusetts, you know, why are so many towns putting up these moratoriums, these bans? That's a good question. It's, uh, it's actually a lot of different reasons. One um, is, frankly, just old-fashioned uh, opposition to it. And, uh, I think that town officials tend to be a little older, a little more conservative, and just, frankly, a little bit more squeamish about marijuana um, than the overall voting public. Um, and, you know, the other thing here is there's a difference between voting for legalization in the abstract, perhaps, and then saying, I'm okay with having one of these uh, shops on my block or in my town. Um, it becomes maybe a different conversation when you're talking about it in um, such concrete terms. But, you know, a lot of the municipalities that have put in place restrictions up here, they've really done so just to buy themselves some time to do zoning, to decide which area of the town um, they think would be appropriate for these kinds of facilities to locate in. And those conversations are sort of beginning in earnest now that the state has finalized its regulations. So I think we'll see a lot of towns start to lift those restrictions now that they have certainty about how the rules work. When we look at a map of uh, Massachusetts, does it? Can you give us an idea of of the the towns and areas where um, they're they're not as uh, keen on this idea of allowing these pot shops to open? Is it pretty much scattered? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to say that there's some very clear pattern to them. I think in general they tend to be more suburban and rural towns, whereas the uh, um, urban areas, you know, Boston doesn't have a ban or a moratorium. Um, but uh, it's it's really all kinds of towns, and and look, some you know some of these towns, frankly, are so small um, that it's unlikely a retail pot shop would want to open in them anyway. They may have a population of 1,200 people or something like that. That's not a big market. Um, but some of these more uh, remote areas would be great for a cultivation facility. Um, you might have cheap real estate out there, or uh, you know we've also had uh, you know some of those sort of former mill towns in Massachusetts, uh, places like Holyoke um, have. You know, the mayor of Holyoke has rolled out the red carpet and says, uh, I've got all these empty 
big brick uh, warehouses, um, you know, down by the river here that used to be manufacturing facilities. They've been dormant for decades in some cases, and he says, um, you know, let's get some pot growers in here. This would be great for us. We'd love the tax revenue. Um, and so you've, you've seen some communities really embrace this. On the phone with me is Dan Adams. He's a cannabis reporter for the Boston Globe. As we talk about the state of Massachusetts gearing up for the sale of recreational marijuana at some point this summer, it's expected to start at July 1st, as we're hearing from Dan Adams. That may not be right on track for July 1st, depending on um, how the agency moves forward with these recreational licenses and also hearing about select uh, Massachusetts towns and municipalities that they're either putting up bans or um, setting up moratoriums until they have time to figure out how they want to uh, regulate it locally. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Now, Dan, the way the Massachusetts law um, has been framed, this is not going to exclude out-of-state residents from coming up into the Bay State uh, to buy uh, recreational marijuana. I'm just curious in terms of what they're expecting from neighboring states, including Connecticut. Sure. Well, look, if you, if you talk to folks in the marijuana industry, they're very excited about the fact that Massachusetts is the first state east of the Mississippi to implement a uh, regulated recreational marijuana market. And absolutely, um, as the industry is sort of doing its projections, they're expecting uh, so-called tourists. They're expecting people from all over the Northeast uh, who are curious about this um, to, to come try it out. Uh, the, the question, though, is uh, whether those folks will be sort of buying marijuana, bringing it back home and using it there. Or if you have people coming from further away and staying in hotels here, you know, we're having a debate right now about where those folks will be able to use marijuana. Even though it's a legal pro- uh, product, you can't consume it on the sidewalk. I could get you a $100 ticket. Um, and you can't consume it, uh, you know, in um, spaces where, you know, you know, a hotel where they probably don't allow smoking inside. Um, and so we're having this conversation right now about whether the state should license these so-called uh, social consumption facilities, which would almost be sort of like a marijuana bar uh, or a lounge where folks could get together and use the drug, um, you know, with their friends, uh, with their fellow travelers. Um, and so that's, that's a big topic of conversation right now. Does that worry some residents, this idea that uh, people would um, be able to buy and then consume um, at a certain location? I know in the past here in Connecticut, and we'll be talking with some Connecticut lawmakers coming up, you know, the, the issue of, of people who are, are driving uh, while stoned. Is that an issue of people that are bringing up in Massachusetts? It's absolutely a topic of conversation here, and it's something that the state is about to uh, sort of embark on a more detailed study of. Um, I'd say two things on that. One, it it is true that there is no um, breathalyzer equivalent for marijuana. There's no simple roadside test that can very easily determine, uh, you know, whether someone is under the influence of marijuana the same way that you can with alcohol. Um, That said, uh, when you look at the science in general, uh, of course, it's never good to drive under the influence. Uh, but people who are under the influence of marijuana don't tend to be quite as bad drivers as people who are drunk. That's one thing. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing is, look, there's bars all over the place, and, uh, you know, you don't see much hand-wringing about that. I've, I wrote a story up here a few years ago about uh, one bar that had been tied to 46 uh, operating under the influence of us in just a few years. And, uh, frankly, the reaction to it was pretty muted. People sort of said, oh, that's too bad. They should clean up their act, and they forgot about it. Um, and so I think... You know, sometimes people forget that we have these bars all over the place uh, and that, uh, you know, people are already using marijuana socially, right? 
people are already getting together with their friends and using it. Um, and so, again, the conversation here now is about whether the state should provide regulated places to use it um, where they can keep an eye on that kind of activity and perhaps tax the sale of it. Uh, before we let you go, Dan, I did want to bring in also with Massachusetts law how it's been designed to address racial disparities in uh, marijuana enforcement. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about that um, and who uh, they're encouraging to, to get into the business, so to speak. Sure. Well, look, I mean, one of the cornerstones of legalization is this idea that, um, you know, prohibition was inherently a racist policy. And, and really, when you look at the numbers, it's pretty clear that although white and black people use marijuana at more or less equal rates, it was really um, black people and other people of color who bore the brunt of enforcement, who were arrested at far higher rates, who were incarcerated at far higher rates. And so the thinking now is, you know, now that we've sort of acknowledged as a state that, hey, prohibition was really not a good policy um, and and maybe this should have never been legal in the first place how do we maybe you know give something back to those people who were unfairly uh, punished for it when it was illegal and so to that end the state has put in place actually quite a robust uh, equity program where formerly incarcerated people um, uh, and people from you know communities of color uh, will get some advantages in the licensing process. They'll get some technical assistance from the state. And the idea is that they really want to encourage them to enter the regulated market, to leave the unregulated market, um, and, uh, and, and sort of contribute in that way to help generate tax revenue, to help generate jobs. And um, that's really been at the center of the conversation here in Massachusetts in a lot of ways, this idea of racial equity. And, and can we design an industry that's fair, that's equitable? I mean, look, I'm sure... Uh, all your listeners are familiar with the conversation about uh, diversity in the tech industry, the lack of uh, you know, women and minority on corporate boards. And so in Massachusetts, there's a feeling that we have an opportunity to design an industry from the ground up. So um, you know, why not do it the right way from the beginning? Uh, and, of course, the details of that are, are where it gets complicated, but it's been a very interesting conversation around um, trying to design you know, sort of a progressive uh, 21st century industry and, and what rules can we put in place to ensure that uh, everybody gets an opportunity now that this product is legal. And, and, uh, and again, to try to return some wealth maybe to those communities that were disproportionately harmed uh, by prohibition. Um, as we're talking uh, this uh, this hour on uh, whether Connecticut will follow suit again to uh, legalize and sell uh, recreational marijuana, I'm looking at the process that has gone through Massachusetts the last couple of years. Any lessons for Connecticut as lawmakers continue to debate this, Dan? Huh. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I think that one thing that Massachusetts perhaps has done well is to really bring uh, all the stakeholders to the table. And, uh, you know, we've got advisory committees that have worked with the state agency. And on those committees, you have police officers, you have uh, activists, you have small business people, you have agricultural experts really run the gamut. Um, and I think that it's important that all those voices uh, you know, be included. Um, and uh, and uh, so, I, I, yeah, I would, if I had to tell Connecticut anything, I'd say, uh, you know, listen, listen to your constituents and, and you know, look at the polling, too. I, I think that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you know, support for legalization in Connecticut is running, uh, you know, well into the 60 percent range. Um, and, you know, without a ballot initiative, it will be on lawmakers uh, to to hear that feedback from their constituents. And, and already I'm, I know that, you know, this is an issue that uh, um, they're trying to make a campaign issue in the governor's race. Uh, in some of the uh, you know, races for uh, state legislature. And um, it'll be interesting to see how much of a part of that conversation the marijuana issue becomes. Dan Adams, again, cannabis reporter for the Boston Globe. Uh, you have a, newsle- a newsletter that uh, listeners can subscribe to. Tell us what it's called. 
Sure. The newsletter is called This Week in Weed. It comes out on uh, Saturdays. It's free, and uh, you can sign up at globe.com slash TWIW. Well, we appreciate your time, Dan, and we'll tweet out links to your latest stories at Where We Live. Thanks again. Thank you, Lucy. Coming up, should Connecticut follow Massachusetts' lead? We'll hear from two lawmakers on opposite sides of the issue, and we want to hear from you, too. Do you support the state legalizing and selling recreational marijuana? Why or why not? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from Boston Globe reporter Dan Adams about Massachusetts being on track to sell uh, marijuana legally this summer. Here in Connecticut, there are several bills before the General Assembly to legalize weed. One proposal died last week before the General Law Committee. Now, the issue of legalization has failed over the last two years. Will this legislative session be the one to see approval? What concerns as a Connecticut resident do you have with this proposal? Do you support Connecticut legal? legalizing and approving the sale of recreational marijuana? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to speak to uh, two lawmakers on uh, different sides of this issue. I want to welcome uh, on the show right now State Senator Gary Winfield, a Democrat representing New Haven. Uh, Senator Winfield, welcome to the show. Thank you. Also on... On the other line with us is State Representative Vincent Candelora from North Branford, a Republican. And I should say that Senator Winfield uh, is the vice chair of the Judiciary Committee, also a member of the Appropriations Committee. Representative Candelora, a member of the Judiciary, General Law and Finance Committees. Representative Candelora, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'll start with Senator Winfield. I understand that you're a supporter of uh, legalization here in Connecticut. Walk us through why there are uh, separate bills, and I believe in four different committees this session. Yeah, um, there are separate bills. There are bills in four different committees. Uh, It's uh, actually a little difficult to keep up with, but I think part of the thinking there is uh, there's a real effort to uh, move this issue forward. We're in a short session. if you had a bill in one committee, it would come out and people would try to push it to another committee uh, because those committees have some level of cognizance over the bill. Uh, if you have bills that are in four committees, uh, the issue has been heard in all of the committees. And uh, if we were to move forward with the bill, you could, um, at that point, uh, wrap into um, the bill that uh, a bill or bills that made it out of committee uh, the components that were heard in other committees. Now, why do you support uh, legalizing and selling uh, marijuana here in Connecticut? Uh, I, for several of the reasons we've heard about um, in the past. Uh, one, I think the, the issue that uh, was part of the conversation towards the end of the last conversation you had about what's historically happened, I think is important. In Connecticut, we talk about marijuana not being a controlling offense, and so maybe that issue of race uh, doesn't play in Connecticut. Uh, but it not being a controlling offense doesn't mean it's... Uh, not one of the offenses that are present doesn't mean that uh, it may not, the issue of marijuana itself may not be uh, what led us towards that controlling offense. Some people say that <clears throat> marijuana is the gateway to other drugs, and I've suggested that maybe marijuana is the gateway to prison uh, in certain communities. So I think that's important. Um, I would never deny the fact that uh, the revenue that would come in is important. I don't think it's the um, uh, issue that makes this what the reason why we want to do it, but it's important. I think people who are proponents uh, recognize that. And also, I think 
uh, just in general, uh, I don't think there should be paranoia around the drug of marijuana as uh, as we've tended to do in this country. I, I wanted to ask Representative Candelora to respond, and I, I understand that you don't want to see legalization um, here of in Connecticut. Representative Candelora. Yeah, that's right. I, I think on um, there's a lot of levels to, to why I'm opposed to it. I mean, I think first, the, the overall societal impacts, um, the fact that um, children have already changed their perception of that drug. Um, I don't believe necessarily that marijuana... Um, it's a gateway drug. It's now become a destination drug. When people start to learn more and more about how that drug has changed over 30 years, uh, the THC levels are now at 30%, whereas in the 70s and 80s, it was down around 3%. Um, it's not the same drug that, that many of us knew when we were younger. It's now become addicting. And um, I think that there's a lot of um, intricacies in trying to sort of deregulate the market and allow people to grow it on their own, um, the impacts of, you know, driving under the influence, um, the addictive part of it. We're hearing from people in the in drug treatment industry who's now saying that they need beds in order to treat people who are addicted to marijuana, whereas before they used to be able to have outpatient treatment, um, they're requiring people to, to have beds. And given where we are with the opioid crisis, and even alcoholism, there isn't enough beds to treat those individuals. And I think it will only compound Connecticut's problem if we do legalize it. All right, Senator Winfield, you've heard these um, these arguments uh, both in past sessions. I mean, what's your response to Representative Candelora about uh, the public health issue side of it and worried about um, seeing more residents become addicted to a substance? Yeah, so I think um, those concerns are... Um, valid concerns. I think that the General Assembly should listen to them, but I don't think those things necessarily become a barrier to doing what we're trying to do. Uh, we're not just simply talking about uh, just legalizing marijuana and people to do whatever they want. We're talking about how do we regulate uh, this issue. Uh, and wrapped into that should be these public health concerns. But the other thing that has happened with marijuana over the course of many years is many things have been mixed into marijuana. Um, so it's not just <clears throat> how the THC levels have changed, but it's what goes with marijuana as well. Uh, what we may be able to do by legalizing marijuana uh, is actually provide a safer product than what currently uh, is on some of our streets. Uh, Representative Candelora, could you respond uh, to what uh, Senator Winfield is saying before I bring in some listener comments? Sure. I mean, I think to the extent that we've, we have a regulated market, we do through the medical industry. So if individuals um, have a need to use the drug, they're able to do it in a controlled environment um, where we know the drug has been tested and it's it's safe to use in the sense that there's nothing laced in it. The the bills that we have in these committees um, don't regulate. It actually deregulates the market because it permits people to grow 6 to 12 plants in their homes. So the thought that somehow Connecticut is going to be better able to regulate the drug by allowing people to grow it in their homes it really ends up having the opposite effect. And so that that is my concern. We're moving away from a regulated market and attempting to deregulate it. Uh, Marshall is calling from Wallingford, and Marshall has a question about what happens to the uh, medical marijuana uh, industry here in Connecticut. Marshall, go ahead. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Okay. So in Connecticut, I have to pay for a license, first of all, to get my medication, which I don't think is right. It's the only medication that I think that I actually have to pay for a license to get, first of all. 
And second of all, it's not covered under insurance. So my question is this. If they were to make it recreational in this state, then what would happen with the medical marijuana side? Would you then say we don't have to pay for our licenses anymore and we should be able to go to dispensary and be covered under insurance? like we are with any other medication. Marshall, good question. So what does happen to Connecticut's medical marijuana uh, program if this moves forward? I'll start with Senator Winfield. Yeah, so I would say that the honest answer currently is that I don't know the exact answer to that. There are conversations ongoing with the state of Colorado and others who are looking at it. Um, and I think that one of the things that if we did move forward with the proposal to legalize marijuana uh, is to learn from uh, places where this has actually happened. So uh, I know that's not the most satisfying answer, but that is uh, probably the best approach to this. Representative Candelora, if um, Connecticut were to legalize and uh, permit the sale of recreational marijuana, it would seem that people wouldn't need to, to wouldn't want to have to pay uh, the $100 fee, the $200 fee to get a doctor um, to write off on a prescription for this medicinal marijuana. Well, that's right. I think in markets where they've deregulated, they've seen the medical industry sort of fall apart. Um, One of the benefits that Connecticut has right now is that there's a lot of research that's going into the medicinal value of marijuana, which I think, you know, I certainly would like to see it continue because we know there's proven um, effects, um, at least anecdotally, and I think that science needs to prove it. Um, I think there's a problem in the medical industry in that it is vertically integrated dispensaries sort of have a monopoly where when you get a, a, a pharmaceutical card to go to one of these dispensaries, you're required to register with only one dispensary. So there's no competition in the market, and essentially there's the ability to price fix. And legislation that I've supported in the past, which unfortunately has not gotten through the legislature, is to look at the dispensary market and really look at the price regulations because it has become much too expensive for people that want to use medicinal marijuana to be able to do so. I wanted to bring in some listener comments now on where we live. Again, as we talk about this uh, debate in the Connecticut General Assembly, there are uh, four uh, separate bills before four separate committees on whether to uh, legalize and allow recreational marijuana. We want to get your take, uh, 860-275-7266. State Senator Gary Winfield is on the phone with me, as well as State Representative Vincent Candelora. And uh, Joseph's calling from Hamden. Joseph, go ahead. Uh, yes, I'd like to ask uh, Mr. Candelora how he could uh, vehemently oppose marijuana legislation when his own sportsplex, he opposes it on the fact that it gives children more access. Yet he gives children access by serving beer and wine to their parents at his own Connecticut sportsplex. Uh, also, he's voted yes on alcohol vending machines in the past on his voter record. And I, I just don't understand the logic behind all that. All right, Joseph, thanks for your call. Uh, Representative Candelora, do you want to respond? Yeah, you know, as we all know, alcohol is a regulated market, and the state of Connecticut has a three-tiered system um, that continues to regulate it. Uh, Marijuana is different. You know, marijuana is a controlled substance. It's illegal under federal law. The structure that's being proposed in the legislature is very different from the three-tiered system that alcohol has. Um, Alcohol is more strictly regulated the proposals that we have in the legislature, I said before, would be allowing people to grow marijuana in their homes and therefore deregulating the market. Um, so my position isn't that I am blanketly against marijuana. I think it has 
a place in society for medicinal purposes. And I want to see that medicinal market continue with research. Uh, Representative Candelaria, you've mentioned a couple times uh, these, that the Connecticut bills include allowing uh, residents to grow uh, six to 12 plants in their home. If that was taken out uh, and people were only able to buy uh, marijuana at a licensed pot shop, so to speak, would that be something you supported? Um, I would still want it to go through a, a medicinal system where there'd be a reason um, for individuals to, to, to use it. So to keep that regulated market, I think unfettered um, authorization to use uh, it still has the same issues. We, we have concerns over the DUIs um, and trying to get control of um, determining when people are intoxicated and driving. So those, still, those issues are still there. Um, so I would not be in support of, of unfettered use. Uh, Gary's calling from New Haven. Gary, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the first comment that I have is I really don't even think we'd be having this conversation right now um, if the state had its financial house in order. Um, so it doesn't, and this is one of the things that our legislatures are thinking about doing uh, to raise revenue for the state. Um, as a parent of two boys, I have a uh, sophomore in high school and a sophomore in college. I have been preaching the dangers of drug use and marijuana use to them at, since a, a very, very young age. And I really just truly feel, regardless of um, you know the revenue impacts to the state, that by legalizing marijuana, um, the legislatures are, are, are undermining us as parents and talking to things and talking about the dangers of marijuana to our kids forever in it. And it basically is giving them permission, if you will, to go on ahead and smoke marijuana and get high. Uh, unfortunately, um, I've seen the repercussions of um, people who have operated motor vehicles uh, under the influence of <clears throat> uh, marijuana and uh, drugs and alcohol. And it's, and it's not a pretty picture. And again, I, I, I really just don't think that it's something that the state needs to be looking at uh, in order to raise revenue. Uh, because again, if we didn't have to raise the revenue, I don't think we'd even be talking about this. Gary, thanks for your call. I'll let Senator Winfield uh, respond. Uh, Senator Winfield, we know that uh, young people, whether uh, marijuana is legal or not, they'll find a way to get it if they want to smoke it. Uh, that's true. Young people smoke marijuana currently. Uh, many of the people who have testified, have talked about their experience as young people smoking marijuana. It's not legal currently. The bills that are in front of the General Assembly uh, don't just legalize marijuana. We're looking at the age of 21. Uh, cigarettes, similarly, uh, aren't legal for our young people, but they smoke They smoke cigarettes. They drink alcohol. It doesn't mean that we're sending a signal that this is what young people should be doing. Uh, we're looking to figure out how we approach the issue of marijuana. Similarly, I, wa- I also want to touch on the issue of Uh, what the bills do and what the bills could be doing. What we are currently doing is hearing proposals and hearing from the public and experts about how we could best implement a system. Uh, If we wanted to talk about regulation, that could be part of the conversation. Because a bill starts off in one fashion, often most people who know what happens in the General Assembly know that what comes out of the General Assembly is not what we started with. 
You can join the conversation here on Where We Live as we talk about uh, what happens next in the Connecticut General Assembly. Uh, will lawmakers uh, look uh, to Massachusetts, which will be making uh, millions of dollars in, in tax revenue through their legalization and sale of recreational marijuana? Will that happen in Connecticut anytime soon? 860-275-7266. Uh, Michael's calling from Avon. Michael, go ahead. Hi. um Representative Kendallora keeps on talking about deregulating the system uh, with, you know, allowing people to grow a few a few plants in their house. But yet, I could I could make a gallon of beer, or 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 I forget what the regulation is, but I can make several gallons of beer or wine in my own house, and the alcohol is uh, the alcohol industry is doing great. So I don't really I don't really understand the logic there either. Um, and there's so many reasons to 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 legalize uh, cannabis. It's not even funny, um, but it, 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 the main thing, though, is that the people want it. I mean, that really should be the only reason. The elected officials in the state are there to do what we want. And the, the reality is, is that the majority of people want marijuana uh, cannabis legalized, and it should be. And that's just it. Thank you, Michael, for your call. Uh, you're referencing a Sacred Heart opinion poll last year. 71% of people in Connecticut support legalizing and taxing marijuana. Uh, Representative Candelore, did you want to respond to what Michael's saying? Yeah, you know, um, I guess I've been very public on my position and my opposition to marijuana. And in my district, we've done a lot of efforts of um, putting on forums and debating the issue. Um, and I have to say that generally the public... Um, has been understanding in my district of the position that I've taken. And I think there's been really good dialogue. And I, I frankly think as people learn more and more about the issue and we see the impacts in Colorado, there is some pause. You know, in, in California, when they had legalized marijuana statewide, it became such a problem that the towns started trying to regulate it on a local level to try to get the genie back in the bottle. Um, so I think the more and more debate that we have on this issue and discussion, um, you know, Connecticut will ultimately get it right, whether we legalize it or not. Uh, Senator Winfield, is this the third year now that this issue has been before lawmakers? And I guess what will be the tipping point? We know that Massachusetts is on its way uh, in July. And, and even if we don't want to say it's about um, the revenue, uh, the, we are a state that's dealing with some major financial issues that aren't going away anytime soon. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the tipping point will be. I think Massachusetts and what happens with Massachusetts may have an impact on Connecticut. Um, it's not very difficult for people across state lines. Um, if we don't pass a bill this year, I think that once we see what impact comes from Massachusetts legalization, that may have some impact on further conversations. Look, whether we are um, uh, looking to do this for whatever reasons we're looking to do it, whether it's the financial issues, whether it's the uh, criminal the history of uh, crime and race in this country and in this state. Um, I think this is a conversation that people come to for genuine reasons. And I think it's a conversation that should we not be able to prevail this year, you will see again and again and again, like many of the other more controversial issues. Uh, Chris is a former Connecticut resident. He's calling from Colorado. Chris, go ahead. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just uh, really appreciate you guys talking about this, and I think it's a really important topic. Um, I did hear some people talking about um, your guests talking about it being a gateway drug and, and uh, having it be similar to the opioid epidemic. Um, and as somebody who lives in Colorado, I'm a licensed medical user there, and um, I'd love to see the state of Connecticut really reach out to Colorado and see what they've been doing right there. 
one thing I wanted to bring up for you guys to consider is that in Colorado, uh, recent scientific reports have seen that opioid uh, deaths and addiction has gone down by 20% with the legalization of marijuana and that child use has not changed at all. So legalizing it has not led to more gateway drugs to other things. It's really kind of an outdated um, modality of thinking about it. So I just wanted to throw that out to you guys to think about and encourage uh, folks to kind of see what Colorado's doing and the successes they've seen there. Uh, thank you, Chris, for your call. Uh, I want to ask uh, Representative Candelora, what are some lessons that Connecticut can learn from Colorado? Well, I think, you know, in, in terms of the reports coming out of Colorado, there are so many dueling reports that we're seeing out of there. Um, for as many reports saying it's not a gateway drug, you'll hear people say it is. You'll hear that the youth um, use has increased, and then you also hear that it has decreased. Um, but ultimately, I think the lessons that that we can take away certainly is that Connecticut needs to be prepared to first, you know, decimate its its medical marijuana program. Um, and is there value in it, and, and should we continue it? Um, but I think ultimately one of the stats that we've heard out of Colorado is the dramatic increase in driving under the influence. There is an increase in deaths in the use of it. Um, we also know that science has shown that using marijuana below the age of 23 can cause an eight-point drop in your IQ, and it can be a permanent uh, reduction. So there's a lot of complex issues to the matter. I mean, the bills that we have out there um, are permitting use at the age of 21, and science would suggest that's not the right age. Um, and I think that we need to have a wait-and-see approach to how it really bores out for Colorado and whether it is a benefit. As far as impaired driving, where did those stats come from? I thought that um, you know, law enforcement has said that there's no real way to test for uh, someone who's, who is under the influence of marijuana. So how do, we, how do they know that impaired driving has increased? So one of the, um, the individuals against legalizing marijuana is a doctor, um, Dr. DeSouza from Yale University, who actually looked at um, driving accidents on 420 on April 20th, because we all know that's the day that people celebrate and use marijuana more frequently. And his analysis had found that there is an increase, and I forget the percentage, but it's a dramatic increase in accidents and deaths um, on that particular day in the afternoon. Um, so it is sort of anecdotal. We have um, arguments back and forth, but I thought that was a statistic that was very interesting that seems to suggest that the using marijuana in combination with alcohol or other drugs um, causes impairment at a level that you cannot test for. I wanted to fit in one more call before we head to break. Ray is calling from Ansonia. Ray, go ahead. I, I, you know, I think it's really sad. I, I really do because of the, that, that, that the people of the state of Connecticut don't look at what's more important. And I, I've talked to several people that work at some of the facilities that treat some of these people and they've stated that the long-term chemical effect of how marijuana has changed is really affecting a lot of people in a really negative way and it it really saddens me that that we look at something for profit um it, grant you know there's a lot of people out there that are one that smoke pot marijuana they want i me personally i can't stand the smell of people walking by me with it but i think it's really sad that the state of connecticut will even think about doing this for people because they vote on it and say, okay, there's a majority of people that want it. But look at the long-term effect of it. And that's the part that, that people are being affected 
and no one's really looking at that and saying, okay, we want the money, we want to generate income. I think it's a lot of bull that our kids got to got to deal with something like this and grow up and say, okay, yeah, you look forward to this. And I, I'm totally against this, and I think a lot of people that are sitting here saying that it's okay and let's do it and everything, I think it's sad. I really do. I'd rather see the tolls come back for more income than to see something like drugs be involved in the state of Connecticut. So or, I, I really have a problem with it. Or casinos, Ray. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, casinos. <laughs> Thank you for your call. I want to have Senator Winfield uh, just wrap up for us. I mean, you're hearing, again, this is obviously uh, an, a debate that will continue um, from both sides, uh, Senator Winfield. I mean, I guess, what you know, we've talked about, you know, we don't know if this will pass this year, but it's something that you still believe uh, Connecticut should be debating. I do believe it's something we should debate. And I believe that when we debate it, we should uh, be honest about what we're talking about. If we're looking at a study on one day, a day where uh, marijuana usage is something that people key in on when it's illegal, that tells us nothing about what would happen with a legalized marijuana system. Also, in terms of the fact that we have multiple studies, we should look at who's putting those studies forward and what interest they may have. And I think when you do that, you disaggregate these studies. You find out that the studies that... Um, like from the Department of Public Health in Colorado, where they don't have the same interest as the Rocky Mountain High Interdistrict uh, inter uh, group that's there to decrease the usage of marijuana have, you find out that uh, what we know is that the usage of marijuana has not skyrocketed, and many of the things that cause fear aren't true. We're going to have a debate in this state this year. We're probably going to have a debate in this state next year. We have to have a debate where we're looking at what the facts are and not simply saying, well, everybody has an opinion, so we don't know anything. We want to thank you, uh, State Senator Gary Winfield uh, from New Haven. Also, State Representative Vincent Candelora, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, we're going to switch topics now. After the break, we're actually going to talk about daylight savings time. We know you're enjoying that extra light in the evening, but in Florida, the governor just signed a bill to keep the state from falling back one hour come fall. We're going to talk with an economist about the so-called Sunshine Protection Act. And also, does it make sense to do away with the multiple time zones across the U.S.? We'll find out after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have you finally caught up with that time change a couple weeks back? Florida wants to make daylight savings time year-round. To explain, joining us from Quartz's New York City studio is Allison Schrager, an economist and columnist for the Quartz. Allison, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us about this law. We love to poke fun sometimes at Florida, but the governor, Rick Scott, just signed into law uh, something called the Sunshine Protection Act. What's the rationale behind it? Well, the rationale is that they would stay on daylight saving permanently, uh, effectively moving to Atlantic time. And I believe the rationale is the longer days, which for an economy very dependent on tourism would mean uh, maybe some economic benefit. Now, this is also something that some New England states have also debated uh, to have more light in the winter. Yes. Uh, so Maine has proposed contingent on New Hampshire and Massachusetts going along with them, that they would move to Atlantic time, which is effectively the same thing Florida's proposing, which is they would move an hour ahead and stay an hour ahead. And why does this need congressional approval? Well, um, since the 1960s, uh, well, before that, whether or not a state follow daylight saving really came down to individual municipalities or cities. If they wanted to follow daylight saving, they could. Um, and then 
it was kind of just very chaotic because some states would be on it, some towns wouldn't, no one ever knew what time they were in. So in the 60s, they had this Uniform Protection Act, Time Protection Act, where they w- where an entire state had to go along with daylight saving or not. Um, but this is different. This is actually just going to a whole new time zone. So that actually takes congressional approval. Now, can we uh, step back into history and explain how the U.S. ended up with all these different time zones and with the way that uh, we live our lives today, how it doesn't really make sense? So um, initially, uh, in the before 1884, uh, individuals, cities, and towns, you know, had their own sundials and were really on their own time. Because in theory, what you want is you want the sun directly above you at noon. So that's solar time. So different towns had their own sundials and were all on their own t- time. But as industrialization changed that, particularly the railroads, you need a better coordination between different towns. Not only because you had the railroads and telegraphs trying to connect different towns, but you had economies become a lot more integrated. So in 1884, there was the International Meridian Conference that 26 countries come together in Washington and agree to these global time zones that we have now. Um, so I think the question is, is now that we're even more integrated, especially you know, with the, in the digital era, is should we have fewer time zones? Do the time zones we built for commerce in the 1880s still make sense? When we talk about daylight savings, uh, even when we look at the when it was when it first came about, uh, tell us about that and and whether or not it's really a question of saving energy these days. Yeah. So in around it was in 1916 uh, in Germany uh, during the war effort, they figured if they changed the clocks in the summer, that they would burn less fuel, you know, take advantage of daylight more, and it caught on then, particularly around the war effort. Uh, but there's not really a lot of evidence that this actually saves any energy at all. But there are costs. Because if you think about it, the whole point of time is economic coordination. So time changes just causes confusion, especially daylight saving when every country seems to observe it on a different day. So what you have is more confusion and very little benefit. And there's also some evidence of more car accidents and uh, slightly elevated rates of heart attacks because it's just stress on the body, the time change. Oh, we were talking about the uh, moving the clocks forward a couple of weeks ago. I think I've seen that this, is, this, this impacts productivity uh, by uh, the millions. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get a member... Uh, accurate read, but those first couple of weeks, everyone's really tired. So it is said, there is some confusion. Europe changes time at a different time. It's really a nightmare for the airlines. So what you do is they have this confusion and exhaustion. So I said, there's two different questions is, do we have the optimal amount of time zones? And I think that's a more contentious issue. But there's no great economic benefit to changing the clocks, but there is some cost. When you look at uh, what uh, Florida has proposed, uh, what's your take? And with our four time zones uh, moving across our country, what's a more seamless uh, process that we could be following? Well, I've proposed that we move to fewer time zones. Uh, I used to uh, live between New York and Texas, and I noticed everyone in Texas did everything at the exact same time. They just call it an hour earlier. Uh, partially because they have to do a lot of business with the East Coast and partially because there's evidence that television schedules really sets people's times. Um, so because we have central time for television, people do everything at the same time. So, But I also noticed living between two time zones is really confusing. So my idea is that we move to fewer. So, ta- so Florida's proposal, New England's proposal would be to move to five. I would say we should move to two. We could have New England... I'm sorry, the East Coast moved to Central Time and the West Coast moved to Rocky Mountain Time and only have two time zones for the entire continental U.S. 
that would be helpful when you have a morning talk show to reach someone on the West Coast. <laughs> exactly. I mean, just imagine if people in California were only an hour behind us. Now, when we go back to the Sunshine Protection Act, again, this is something that the Florida governor has signed. Um, but Senator Marco Rubio wants the whole country to do what Florida's doing. Yeah, that was unexpected. Uh, he, he's now floating a bill that we all move, uh, we all move to daylight saving per- permanently, which, you know, I said, it's really, you know, you can debate whether you know on the longer nights or, or, or sunnier mornings, but it would be good at least to sort of get rid of this confusion by the time change. And is this possible this could, that Congress would even uh, consider this given all of the other weightier uh, issues they have before them? I would be surprised, especially you never know. People get really passionate about time zones, and it could get divisive in, in this environment. But then again, maybe this is something that can bring everything to, everyone together. Well, remind us, when we look at uh, the globe, how many countries actually don't even consider um, you know, having more than one time zone? Sorry, what? Um, when we look at the globe, uh, there's lots of countries that don't even consider having more than one time zone. Look at India or China. Exactly. Like they are all in one time zone. I mean, it does cause some tension. I'm told people in the westernmost province of China um, even follow their own time zone as an act of political resistance, but also because they're really far away from Beijing. So it actually means that they're really because the thing is, you want to think about it as there's a trade off. You do want to be close to your solar time, but then there's also the needs of global commerce and economics. So what you want to do is have some trade off because in the limit, you would have one global time zone, but that wouldn't make any sense at all because you do want to be somewhat connected to your solar time. And China might be a little big to only have one time zone. I want to thank Allison Schrager, again, an economist who joined us from the studios of Quartz in New York City. Thank you, Allison. It's good to have a little bit of an explainer of why we do what we do uh, in the spring and the fall. Oh, thank you. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to WMPR intern Garnet McLaughlin. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. And you can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>